0: The number of privately owned firearms in the United States is estimated to be around 393 million. Recent surveys suggest that more than 81 million Americans aged 18 and over privately own firearms. This would indicate that one-third of all civilian guns globally are privately owned by nearly one-third of U.S. citizens. Private gun ownership in the U.S. is considered a right, enshrined in the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution, which deems a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This amendment has, for more than 230 years, been subject to varied judicial interpretation. In the US, on average, more than 40,000 deaths are attributed to gun violence annually. This is an alarming statistic as it reveals that the United States is the only developed country in the world to report such high figures. Consequently. Guns and gun ownership have become polarizing issues. 48% of Americans view gun violence as a major problem, with more than half of US citizens favoring stricter gun laws. The prevailing arguments, both for and against greater gun ownership restrictions, incorporate a range of issues, from party lines and political agendas to the influence of media coverage and the role of police in combating violence. But what does recent scholarship reveal? And how might this scholarship inform policy for the better? This is Amy Britton with the Oxford Comment. On today's episode, we explore the history of gun ownership in the United States and practical solutions for resolving contemporary gun violence. Our first guest, Robert J. Spitzer, is the author of The Gun Dilemma, How History is Against Expanded Gun Rights. He shared with my colleague Megan Schaefer new historical research on America's gun law history as it informs modern gun policy disputes.
1: Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for joining us today. Could you introduce yourself?
2: Yes, I'm Robert Spitzer. I'm Distinguished Service Professor Emeritus of Political Science from the State University of New York at Cortland. And I'm the author of 16 books, including six on gun policy, two of which I'm happy to say have been published by Oxford University Press. And my most recent uh, book with Oxford is called The Gun Dilemma, How History is Against Expanded Gun Rights.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Firearms and the controversies surrounding their ownership are deeply rooted in American culture. Could you walk us through the early history of arms ownership in the United States and the establishment of the Second Amendment?
2: Sure. Let's be clear at the outset that gun ownership is as old as America in terms of when Europeans first landed on these shores. But what's less well known is that gun laws are also as old as the establishment of early colonies on these shores in the 1600s. And gun ownership continued throughout our early history. It was extremely important for defense purposes in particular because the settlers were confronted with violence Uh, which they, of course, extended to Native Americans, who were already here, and reprisals coming as well. They also were extremely concerned about other European powers, the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, and possible military threats from them. And uh, so guns were very much a part of colonial life and early American life generally, but let me say again, so too were gun laws. As a matter of fact, the very first gun law was enacted in 1619. In the summer of that year, the uh, leaders of the Jamestown colony came together in colonial Virginia because They needed to establish some uh, autonomous local government, because even though they were good British subjects, it took long, long time for communication to occur between Britain and the American shores. And in that summer of 1619, they enacted a series of, oh, 30, 35 laws to facilitate governance of the colony. And one of those laws was a gun control law. It was a law that made it punishable by death to trade, sell, or give firearms to Native Americans, and gun laws continued and proliferated as the colonies did. This fact is not well known because these laws were themselves unknown to a great degree until the digitization of old gun laws accelerated in the last 10 or 15 years or so, and It's produced a large body of old gun laws, which I have been studying now for nearly a decade, as other people have too. And it's made clear that while we always had a gun culture and gun ownership, although to some degree that gun ownership has been exaggerated and distorted, we've also had a long history of gun laws. And indeed, there were literally thousands of gun laws of every imaginable variety— from the 1600s up to the start of the 20th century. And they covered virtually every aspect of regulation that one could imagine with respect to ownership, handling, use of guns, deprivation of guns at various points. And during this process, we eventually fought the American Revolution, fighting it to a great degree with militias in addition to the Continental Army and those militia men were obligated by law to keep and maintain their own military grade weapons yet we also know from that history two important things one is that most men couldn't be bothered to do that had no interest in obtaining and maintaining military grade weaponry and secondly militia forces were terrible on the battlefield with some notable exceptions we won the revolution against britain to substantial degree despite the militias not because of the militias and The military leaders, including George Washington, were keenly aware of these problems and wrote about them prolifically. And uh, that was a a bitter learning experience, although, of course, we eventually did prevail in the uh, Revolutionary War. We were then governed by our first constitution called the Articles of Confederation. And in 1787, the founders uh, came together and produced our modern constitution, Two years later, in 1789, the first Congress uh, debated, uh, changed, amended, and eventually passed 12 amendments to the Constitution, 10 of which were successfully adopted, becoming the Bill of Rights. The second amendment in that list was the right to bear arms, and much mythology grew up about that amendment, about its meaning and consequences, but as the founders and the members of the first Congress wrote, debated, argued, and eventually passed what became the Second Amendment, examining the debate, examining the understanding at the time, looking at court cases from the 1800s and into the early 1900s. What's clear is that the Second Amendment pertained to the ability of states to maintain their own militias, because something extremely important happened with the new Constitution of 1789. Under the previous Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, control of state militias was solely under the control of the states, which proved to be one of the many fundamental problems with the old Articles of Confederation. Under the modern Constitution of 1789, adopted in 1789, control of militias was squarely given to Congress in Article 1, Section 8, and the states were frantic about that. Precisely because they saw their situation as having lost control of the militias, which indeed they did. Power was transferred to Congress to control the militias. And states had an abiding interest to maintain their own militias. They didn't trust other states to provide military assistance. Many of them were mistrustful of the idea that the new Congress would provide military assistance in case of military emergency. And certainly, southern states were frantic about the fact that they had used their state militias to maintain control over the enslaved population, which was very large in southern states. And they were, again, concerned that if they didn't have control over their own militias, then they would not be able to effectively deal with slave rebellions, which occurred with great frequency. So the Second Amendment was the reassurance to the states that they would continue to be able to have their own militias and put them together and have some control over them. And that militia-based understanding of the Second Amendment is how it was understood for virtually 200 years. That then takes us to a a final step, which is that in 2008, uh, the Supreme Court ruled for the first time in history that The uh, right to bear arms referenced in the Second Amendment pertained to individuals and the right of individuals to protect themselves using guns in their homes. And this personal or individual right represented a new interpretation of the Second Amendment. Remember that the Second Amendment says that a well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Chief Justice Warren Berger said many years ago that the best way to understand the wording of the Second Amendment is by beginning it with the word because, as in because a well-regulated militia is necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, a more conservative and gun-oriented Majority in the Supreme Court in 2008 decided that that militia interpretation was incorrect or was only one way to read the amendment. And so their historical and controversial decision in D.C. versus Heller in 2008 decided and ruled that it was an individual right and that the militia perspective was not really significant, if you will. And that changed constitutional law for sure. And the next important step came in 2022 when an ever more conservative court expanded that right as defined in the Heller decision from 2008 to extend the right to have a gun for personal self-defense out in society. And that was a major step by the court and a very controversial one.
1: Do you feel contemporary audiences misinterpret the Second Amendment and what can be said of originalism, textualism, and other judicial interpretations regarding this issue?
2: Well, there has long been a belief among many Americans that the Second Amendment was basically about a personal right. So in the popular mind, just because of the phrase, the right to keep and bear arms, and because modern Americans don't really have any sense of what a militia is or what it's all about, except some, it's some vague historical relic that, you know, many Americans simply believe that, yeah, the Second Amendment gives you a right to have a gun to protect yourself or maybe for hunting or sporting purposes or other things, but we don't determine constitutional meaning by taking a vote of the public. And as a matter of law, the Second Amendment was clearly defined as a militia-based right that is pertaining only to citizen service in a government-organized and regulated militia. Bearing in mind also that in the 18th and 19th century, militia members had an obligation to obtain their own weapons, because the government didn't have the resources or ability to arm and equip a large military force, including the militias. So that brought in kind of a personal element for those men who were eligible for militia service. But then uh, the 2008 Heller Supreme Court decision says, well, it is about an individual right. And in connection with these two recent Supreme Court rulings, they have relied very heavily on the philosophy or judicial doctrine or constitutional doctrine of originalism. And the definition of originalism has changed somewhat in recent years, and it's a recent doctrine that dates back only a few decades. And it essentially has settled on what's called a public meaning, that is to say, an originalist argues that you should interpret the Constitution and render a judgment about the constitutionality of gun laws, or many other matters as well, based on what the meaning was as it was understood at the time it was written, back in the late 18th century. How were the words understood at the time? And that judges should filter out any concerns about uh, contemporary perspectives, contemporary issues. And indeed, in the Supreme Court's decision from 2022 about the definition of gun rights under the Second Amendment, it expanded its conclusion that the constitutionality of current gun laws should be judged based on whether similar laws existed in history in the 1800s, in the 1700s. And this idea of focusing only on the text of uh, the Bill of Rights, let's say, or the second amendment and on the public meaning, whatever that might entail when it was written at the time has a number of problems. For one thing, the Constitution, as we know, was the product of many hands. It was vague as to its meaning, and much of the wording in the Constitution is ambiguously worded, to be sure, and the framers themselves disagreed about not only the meaning, but how strictly to adhere to the Constitution. That is to say, there was no single unified, agreed-upon public understanding of the words in the Constitution back in the 1700s. In addition, many of the Framers changed their minds about important principles in the Constitution over time. And it assumes, to emphasize this point, the originalist perspective assumes that the Framers had settled meanings or accepted settled meanings about what the Constitution meant in its words, and they simply did not. And Finally, the country has changed profoundly from the 1700s up to the present. I mean, in 1789, the United States consisted of 13 Atlantic coast-hugging states where over 95% of its inhabitants were subsistence farmers. Jump ahead 100 years to 1900. The country now spans the continent from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It now consists of 48 states, later 50 states and it has become an industrial giant. And the typical American no longer works on a farm, but lives in an urban area and probably works in a factory somewhere. The country is completely different 100 years later. And the idea that judges today must affix themselves solely on what they believe things uh, were interpreted to mean back in 1789 is uh, inherently problematic. And to my way of thinking, and originalism has many critics, um, I think it is a theory that ultimately collapses of its own weight. And indeed, I think it is proven to be an invitation for judges of all stripes, but especially conservative judges, to paste their own values into judicial decisions based on the guys that they're doing history. And they're frankly not all that good at doing history.
1: You mentioned Heller and Bruin. Have there been other precedent-setting legal cases concerning firearm ownership in the United States? Could you share your insight on some of the most consequential decisions?
2: So in the last uh, decade plus, we've had two very important and uh, controversial, and also you might say path-breaking Supreme Court rulings on the meeting of the Second Amendment. But there have been other Supreme Court rulings in the past that took a very different view of the Second Amendment, and there aren't many, but there are some, and they're significant. And I'll mention two. Back in 1886, the Supreme Court ruled in a very important and often overlooked case called Presser versus Illinois. And in that case, a, uh, a man and his organization wanted to march through the streets of Chicago armed, and they constructed their organization in a quasi-military fashion. They were not organized by the state of Illinois, And they were denied a permit to march through the streets of Chicago, and the case went to court. And in its ruling, the Supreme Court made very clear that the Second Amendment right that this man, Presser, and his organization claimed was not a right that they could claim under the Second Amendment. That, for one thing, as a private organization, they could not claim to come under the umbrella of the Second Amendment— because they were not a militia in the eyes of the law, even though they functioned and operated sort of like a militia, what we would today call a paramilitary organization, one that mimics the behavior of a military organization, but it is not authorized or controlled or a part of the government, whether state government or federal government. And the court viewed the Second Amendment and went on at some length about it, explaining that it pertained to militias, And because Pressure's group was not a militia under the law of Illinois, at that time, the uh, militia of Illinois was the National Guard of Illinois, which is the vestige of the old militia system, they concluded that uh, the uh, man and his organization did not have a right to engage in parading for the obvious reason that such power must rest with the government and cannot rest in private Hands And in 1939, in another Supreme Court case called U.S. versus Miller, two men named uh, Jack Miller and Frank Layton were charged with transporting a sawed-off shotgun across interstate lines in violation of the first significant national gun law called the National Firearms Act of 1934, which was a law designed to restrict gangster-type weapons like the Tommy gun, sawed-off shotguns, and certain other types of weapons. So they were prosecuted under this state law and uh, they appealed their prosecution making a second amendment claim that they had a right to bear arms, right? to have a gun. And the Supreme Court unanimously rejected that argument and went on to explain that the Second Amendment was all about militia activity, and that because these two men, who actually were gangsters, were not a part of any militia or any government organization, they had no right to cross state lines with their sawed-off shotgun. So that court decision emphasized the militia-based understanding of the Second Amendment. Subsequent to that time, from the 1940s up through uh, the 1990s and the early 2000s, Around 50 lower federal court decisions all accepted the militia based view of the Second Amendment. So in 2008, when the Heller decision comes along and reverses that interpretation and says, no, it's really about an individual right, that was a major change. And I should add that this individualist theory was fairly new, it was formulated. In, essentially in the 1980s by some conservative lawyers and conservative legal organizations, including the Federalist Society, which is a very active and powerful legal group today, to be sure. And through writings in law journals and legal publications, they cultivated uh, uh, this individualist theory as a competing theory to the militia theory. And eventually, you got enough conservative judges who adhered to this individualist view and also adhered, adhered to the doctrine of constitutional originalism, that they were able to marshal the votes on the Supreme Court to change the meaning of this Second Amendment. And in terms of the public mind, I'm not sure how much of this really was understood. After all, many of these questions are arcane legal questions, but the court's rulings in recent years have certainly provided great fuel to the idea that the Second Amendment applies to individuals any time a human hand comes in contact with a firearm. And that might seem like an extreme view, but these days I think there are a fair number of Americans, certainly not a majority, but a fair number of gun rights Americans who believe that to be true.
1: In arguments concerning the right to bear arms, there are often a multitude of variables considered, including, but not limited to, the difference between handguns and assault rifles, as well as the legality of extended magazines, silencers, and concealed carry. Could you expand on some of these variables and why they are seemingly so integral to discussions on gun control?
2: The primary focus of the contemporary gun debate is very much around the weaponry that is available to people today. And there continues to be, I think, some confusion about this. Certainly the most controversial and arguably leading element of the gun safety movement has included efforts to limit assault weapons because they are frequently used in high-profile mass shootings, and of course those shootings receive an enormous amount of attention. The number of mass shootings has been increasing uh, progressively for the last 20 years. It's a matter of deep concern for obvious reasons. And indeed, assault weapons pose a very specific criminality problem in three respects. They are favored weapons of mass shooters, although mass shooters more likely to have to use a handgun than an assault weapon. But in terms of proportionality, assault weapons frequently appear, and especially where there are many casualties in the shooting. So that's one obvious problem with assault weapons. Secondly, they are used disproportionately against the police. And third, assault weapons are favored weapons of criminal gangs and extremist right-wing elements within the United States. And indeed, the assault weapon itself has become a rallying symbol for the far right. And these elements make the assault weapon itself a problematic firearm and why there's so much controversy surrounding it. Now, having said that, it's equally even arguably more important to point out that most gun crime in America generally is committed with handguns for the obvious reason that they're easily concealable. And that by itself is a major problem and concealability of weapons was a deep concern of our ancestors in fact just to go to history for a minute from the late 1700s up to the start of the 20th century every state in the country with perhaps one exception enacted laws to restrict concealed weapons carrying not just handguns pistols but also certain types of knives, what were called fighting knives, and also various types of clubs. So it was well understood in the 19th century that if you were carrying a concealable weapon around with you, you were up to no good, period. Jump to the modern era, and we have a kind of an odd situation now where in the last 15 years or so, a large number of states have repealed their pistol permitting requirements, meaning that as long as you can legally own a handgun, you can carry it around with you in society, obviously concealed. And while people might think that's a return to, you know, the gun-toting Old West, for example, it really is not because the gun-toting Old West was really not so gun-toting at all for the obvious reason that states rapid and communities rapidly enacted anti-concealed carry laws because it was well understood that the carrying of concealed weapons, except for people authorized to do so, uh, was a public health menace. In the modern era, handguns are the main weapon used in gun violence, and that poses a very particular problem, and they're not particularly useful for hunting sporting purposes compared to long guns. Um, Part of this debate, and a part that doesn't receive the degree of attention it should, involves ammunition magazines. And this takes us especially to assault-type weapons, but also to handguns as well. And at least 10 states have enacted restrictions on assault weapons in recent years. They're, of course, under court challenge right now because of the Supreme Court ruling from 2022. But 10 states have moved in this direction. And generally speaking, those restrictions also include restrictions On what are identified as large capacity magazines that is to say ammunition magazines that can hold uh, more than 10 rounds although a, a few states set a different number than 10 but most states utilize the 10 round limit on the simple argument that there's no particular reason or justification for allowing larger capacity magazines around and To provide ready access to them is simply to invite people to fire off lots and lots of rounds for no good purpose, aside from maybe people going to a shooting range who want the enjoyment and fun, as they might view it, of shooting off lots and lots and lots of rounds without reloading. And indeed, magazine limitations represent one important element of the effort to stem gun violence, because we know that from uh, various mass shootings, for example, Perpetrators are often stopped when they stop to reload, to insert a new magazine. So, I mean, the, the question is, why should civilians be allowed to own a 30-round or 60-round or 100-round magazine? There is no coherent reason why civilians should be allowed to do that. And that's a basis for restricting magazines and restricting the harm that can be a consequence of guns that can accommodate these large capacity magazines. There has also been a recent debate about gun silencers, or what are sometimes called gun suppressors. And there's been an effort to make silencers more easily available. Gun silencers were restricted by the 1934 National Firearms Act, precisely because silencers were used by criminals. But there's been a move to deregulate silencers, saying that they are useful for helping shooters protect their hearing. But part of the problem with that argument is that there are other ways to protect and more effective ways to protect the hearing of shooters which is to wear hearing protection. And indeed there's very good and inexpensive hearing protection available to anybody who, you know, cares to uh, obtain those things and I've engaged in shooting and I always wear hearing protectors, and they are perfectly effective in limiting the noise that guns produce. And there's another reason why it's good that guns make a noise. And that's because it provides a sound warning to people in the area that somebody's firing a gun.
1: There are contemporary and emergent gun controversies that may make their way to the Supreme Court, Could you share some of these recent controversies and the impact that any potential rulings may have on gun legislation going forward?
2: Since the Supreme Court ruled in 2022 to expand the definition of gun rights to the public realm, the Supreme Court did something else as well in that ruling, which was that it changed the criteria for judging the constitutionality of current gun laws. Not only is it an originalist point of view, but the court said in its majority opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas was the author of that opinion, that the constitutionality of current gun laws should be determined based on whether there were historical gun laws of a similar nature. Are there historical analogs? And that has proven already to be a pretty chaotic standard because it's really a pretty vague standard. I mean, what constitutes a similar gun law from, you know, 1805, let's say, or some earlier period? The court really didn't provide any guidance on that question. And this has invited a host of new challenges of every manner of gun law all around the country. And there are already hundreds of cases of gun laws being challenged, including laws that had been challenged and upheld before the 2022 Supreme Court Bruin decision that are now reopening the challenges because of this new standard. And leaving aside the very problematic nature of that standard, among the many questions or the many types of gun laws that are now under challenge are uh, assault weapons restrictions from 10 states, and restrictions on large capacity magazines, which around 15 states have. Some states restrict large capacity magazines, but not assault weapons. And it's clear that one or more of these challenges will make their way to the Supreme Court. And my own view is that uh, several of the very conservative justices on the Supreme Court are chomping at the bit to strike down more gun laws. Because even though the 2008 Heller Supreme Court decision created this new individual right to have a gun under the Second Amendment, it also was pretty clear to say, essentially, look, that most existing gun laws were more or less fine under this new Heller standard, and most gun laws have been upheld from 2008 up until last year, and some of the justices were just not happy with that, Uh, Justice Thomas leading among them. And so my own view is that I think that they want to strike down more gun laws and use this historical standard as the basis for doing it. So I think we're just going to see lots of tumult. And we're also going to see, I think, two other things. One is states with stronger gun laws will find ways to write different gun laws that they believe to be compatible with the Supreme Court's new standard. And the other thing is I I think the public has less and less patience with Gun laws being struck down because they're overwhelmingly popular, because research generally supports the idea that these laws are effective and that they are compatible with the idea that the government can and should do more to make sure that people who don't have, who who shouldn't have guns, don't get access to guns. And many of these laws are designed specifically to do that very thing. So this really throws uh, chaos I think into the question of what gun laws will exist in America uh, henceforth. And you're going to be seeing, uh, we will all be seeing a lot of back and forth between the states and the courts. And perhaps Congress will get involved in this in years to come, too.
1: Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your scholarship on this issue.
2: I I very much enjoyed speaking with you.
0: Our second guest, Philip J. Cook, is co author of Policing Gun Violence. Strategic Reforms for Controlling Our Most Pressing Crime Problem. He spoke with us about utilising the police as a strategic resource for reducing gun violence. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Philip. Um, You have over 45 years' experience in researching gun violence prevention, so please could you summarise how you got into this field and where it's led you since?
3: Yes. Hello, Amy. I have uh, indeed been at this a very long time. Indeed, Uh, I got started really as a graduate student in economics uh, at the University of California, Berkeley, where my specialty uh, was on the economics of crime. And after I joined the Duke University faculty, I had an opportunity to uh, work specifically on the crime of robbery, and I got interested in what I started calling the technology of personal violence, with a particular focus on the type of weapon that was used in a robbery or in an assault, and what difference it made. And uh, at the time, this was a unique topic. Nobody else was working on it or thinking about it. And in fact, I think the common view in criminology and and even in the law was that what's most important is the intention of the perpetrator, not the tool that they happen to have readily available. So what I was able to show in my research from the beginning is that the type of weapon matters a lot especially with respect to whether the victim is seriously injured or killed as a result of the robbery or, or the assault. One thing led to another after that initial research. Um, and as a, in the natural course of events, I was looking at the gun regulations and, and the uh, influence that gun regulations had on criminal outcomes, and particularly the death rate. I was researching the seriousness of, of crime generally, and and how much um, the ready availability of guns was contributing to the high cost of crime uh, in the US. So that's very briefly covers, but maybe the first 30 years or so, the Recent research program that I've launched has been focusing particularly on the police and and the role of the police in controlling gun violence. And so that is what brought us together today uh, that I ended up with uh, my colleague, Anthony Braga, writing a book on policing gun violence.
0: Thank you so much for giving us that tour of your work. So um, with a nice segue, looking now at the actual book itself, Policing Gun Violence, um, this book in particular explores some systematic causes of gun violence in America. So could you outline what these are and why it's important that these remain in discussion?
3: Yes, I mean, what I'd like to say, and it it might sound a a bit reductionist, is that gun violence is uh, the combination of uh, guns and violence. And so one thing that I think we probably all know is that the United States has an extraordinarily high rate of gun violence, uh, gun murder, uh, gun suicide, uh, gun robbery, and so on uh, in comparison with other developed or wealthy countries around the world, we are off the charts in that respect. And it's uh, not primarily because we have an exceptionally high rate of violence in the United States, although we are above average. Uh, But it's uh, because uh, we allow a very ready access to guns and particularly the types of guns that lend themselves to criminal use, uh, handguns, revolvers, that sort, and then very sadly, indeed, for the the purposes of would be mass shootings, these assault weapons that are are now becoming more and more popular in in the United States. So it, it ends up being this combination of uh, guns and violence that produces gun violence. Uh, one difference it, it makes is that it greatly increases the death rate from our violence. So other countries have high rates of, of fights and assaults and robberies and that kind of thing, but very few people die. Uh, in the United States, of course, the death rate is uh, is much higher from those kinds of crimes, because the most lethal of of all common weapons is more likely than not what is being used in in those cases. Um, So, you know, in looking to what we can do and, and what we can do in the United States, particularly, it comes down to a question of recognizing the dual the uh, importance of both violence and about gun
0: availability. Thank you for that answer. Um, that's so interesting. I feel like sometimes it is necessary to decomplicate things, and you did that so succinctly with, uh, with gun violence is the combination of guns and violence. Um, Moving to the next question to look a little bit more into police. So you've explored in your research the current perceptions of the police in the United States and the role this plays into the effectiveness of crime control. Could you elaborate on how the police are perceived in 2023 and the most pressing changes that need to be made to address this?
3: Yeah, I mean, just a bit of history, uh, which I'm I'm sure is familiar to everybody. But in uh, May of 2020, uh, several police officers in the city of Minneapolis were involved in the killing of George Floyd, uh, a civilian who uh, was a sympathetic character in, in, in many respects and, and certainly did not deserve what happened to him. That led to this extraordinary period of, of uh in, in which the police across the nation were vilified. Uh, there were demonstrations in all of the large cities. And, and in fact, to some extent, uh, the demonstrations were showing up even in Europe um, uh, against the police. And the slogan at the time was to defund the police. Uh, the more radical view was to abolish the police, the, the there was really nothing to be done about police violence, except to do away with them, uh, or greatly curtail them. So now, three years later, we find ourselves um, with uh, a still higher rate of gun violence than we had in 2020. Uh, That the response to the demonstrations and to the defund movement was that the police, to a large extent, withdrew, uh, stopped engaging so much to, to, with um, their their normal routines, and um, the one result was that um, to encourage criminals and and to increase the amount of uh, violence generally, um, many police took early retirement in the face of, of this vilification, uh, and it has been very hard to replace them because uh, recruiting into the police is difficult. So the, uh, the irony, I guess, is that the defund movement, which was not successful politically, uh, ended up uh, being realized to a large extent simply by the fact that the police forces everywhere are, are now greatly understaffed simply because they have a a lot of difficulty in recruiting new officers to replace those who have left, uh, in the face of this public challenge. So I think that that's the top line story, um, over the last few years is the police being, uh, vilified by, um, a, a more or less radical group that was, uh, of course, angered by the George Floyd murder um, and by other instances of that sort, uh, and the the current day difficulties that the police there have in maintaining force uh, or their their full complement of officers. But if you go out and ask ordinary people about their views of police, you get a much different view of how they are viewed and what the public expects of them. I think that especially residents of high-violence areas, including African Americans and and other minority groups, uh, believe that the police are essential and imperfect. Uh, and the the phrase that are is often used is that they have the sense that. Um, they are both over-policed and underpoliced. Uh, so on the one hand, they feel over-policed in, in the sense that they are often harassed by the police or th- that they're stopped for petty crimes, um, maybe drinking a beer in public, something like that. But on the other hand, the police don't do enough to solve the serious crimes and, and to confront the violence that plagues those neighborhoods and, and makes uh, the standard of living so much lower than it would be otherwise. So I think far from defunding what the, the, the large center uh, of the political distribution wants is for the police to, to be more effective to do the job that uh, has been assigned to them of preserving public safety and to do whatever is necessary uh, to make that happen, especially for high crime areas in, in the in the big cities. And, and uh, there's, I, I think, uh, the dilemma that we find ourselves with right now, uh, that the, the police need to be stronger, they need to be more effective the public, in effect, is uh, asking for that and supporting it, but it has proven uh, very difficult in in the face of the public vilification.
0: Thank you for that answer. Um, one of the main focuses of your book is on policing strategies to address gun violence. Could you elaborate on some of the specific tactics that you propose and how they can contribute to controlling this pressing crime problem?
3: Uh, yes, of course. I, I think that this is uh, a, a very important focus uh, for our discussion, that it's it's not just uh, a general wish that the police do better, but actually we do have some suggestions about uh, changes in priority and approach that would be uh, effective uh, and I I would say the first one in my mind uh, is to upgrade the priority that's given to uh, criminal investigations involving non-fatal shootings, so it's a very specific uh, area. What I've discovered in looking at the data from many cities is that the clearance rate, the arrest rate, what have you, is much higher for a fatal shooting than for a non-fatal shooting. That's a surprise if you step back from it, because after all, the non-fatal shooting has an extra witness who often knows a lot about what happened and can be helpful to the police. Uh, The reason we see this large gap between fatal and non-fatal shootings is because simply the, the police have placed much higher priority on the investigation of the case if the victim dies and then it becomes uh, a matter for the homicide squad uh, and something that is of the highest priority. My point was simply that the difference between life and death in a shooting is largely simply a matter of chance. And from the point of view, the question about the usefulness of making an arrest and a prosecution in a non-fatal shooting is just as great as in a fatal shooting because it's the same people involved with the same motives and often the same circumstances. And if what you're thinking about is deterrence and incapacitation uh, and stopping vigilante revenge cycles, then it's equally important to solve the non-fatal shooting cases. This is an idea that is beginning to catch on so denver most prominently in their police department has greatly expanded the investigation of non-fatal shootings uh, with good success uh, my own city of durham north carolina uh, has taken a big step in that direction and other cities are talking about it so uh, i think that this is an important step i think we can also talk about targeted patrol of hotspots. That's increasingly widely accepted by the police as being an appropriate tactic. Uh, we endorse it in the book and, and we talk specifics that it's not just putting cops on the beat in these micro areas that, that have concentrated gun violence uh, but also changing the mentality to look at, at what they're doing there as partly solving problems and particularly looking for what are the problems in in this particular area that might lend themselves to the city planners or changing traffic patterns or and somehow closing down a licensed establishment, uh, like a a tavern or a bar uh, that would diffuse the violence in that area and have a long lasting effect. Um, One of the big Uh, successes in the research uh, recently has been the discovery through a huge controlled experiment in Philadelphia uh, that if you simply clean up city blocks that have been uh, vacant, standing vacant, and have attracted a lot of underground uh, activity, uh, if you clean them up, uh, if you get your local garden uh, group to beautify them, that that actually, among other things, uh, reduces the amount of gun violence in, in that area. So it's it's a a nice outcome, and we have uh, several other proposals of of this kind of specificity. Uh, certainly, I, I think uh, everyone close to the police is very concerned about improving relationships with the public, uh, and of course, whatever you do, and and as a routine matter in terms of community policing and and establishing um, friendly relationships on the beat. It, it all is for nothing if the police are engaging in, in unwarranted excess violence in their dealings with the public. And so finding ways to control the police, to train them, to hold them accountable for excess violence is absolutely essential. And what we talk about in the book is, Contrasting different cities that are otherwise very similar in the US, like Phoenix and Dallas, and saying, Notice that Phoenix routinely has three times as many police killings as Dallas, even though they are so similar in other respects. And it comes down to uh, the obvious lesson that through good management and good training, high priority on good behavior, in effect, that the police can change and they can rein in uh, the the excesses along the way, Uh, especially if it includes a system of accountability for the uh, bad actors on the force. So again, reminder that the police are an imperfect institution. I think we can say that about every institution that we have that is essential. uh, And that the answer Uh, in our view, is uh, to find reforms that will rein in the abuses at the same time that it it will increase the effectiveness uh, of the police in doing their core mission of bringing justice to the public.
0: Thank you very much. Those tactics are really interesting to hear, and especially those that we actually have evidence for in practice, the ones that you touched on. So yeah, thank you. Um, Just a bit of a follow-up question, have there been any changes in funding available to research gun violence? And if so, what accounts for these changes?
3: I I think the answer is yes, there is more funding now than there was a a few years ago. Uh, When I first got into the field, uh, the field didn't exist. And then in the 1980s, the public health uh, researchers started paying attention to gun violence. and so that they depend very heavily on federal grants for their research. their the, the public health faculty are expected to justify their existence and pay their own salary from, from grants. Um, then sure enough, the centers for disease control did uh, create a grants program to support public health research in, in the area. And that eventually uh, led to some very important um, findings that that basically said uh, that guns in the home uh, actually increase the risk to the householders uh, rather than providing protection uh, against home invasion or or something like that. So on on balance, having a gun in the home is uh, risky. Uh, and puts the, the children and, and the adults both at at greater risk of gunshot injury than they would be otherwise. That finding was anathema to the gun industry and to the gun lobby, the National Rifle Association. I think more than anything I had ever done up until that point, Whatever they, that was seen as cutting to the core of what they were about. Uh, and so they got their friends in Congress to stop the federal funding uh, through the Centers for Disease Control. And so for many years, um, we we did not have that stream of funding. There was some other federal money. Some foundations stepped in and started providing private funds along the way. And, and there were other sources. Now that Biden is, is in office, uh, they have reversed that. And, and so now there is a new renewed funding stream through the Centers for Disease Control and and the National Institutes of Health. And so that what the the result that that I've seen is a lot of, uh, you know, hundreds of young public health scholars and would be scholars are coming into the field, because there's money available, the foundations continue to be active in the area. And, and um, that's a good thing. Meanwhile, I mean, the federal government has always been uh, making an important contribution through data, and so the data I've used is often available free and uh, is of more or less high quality uh, because it, it, through through all of those political ups and downs, that was not challenged.
0: You've touched a little on this already. And as we know, the gun debate in the United States is often complex and polarized with strong opinions on both sides. So how do you navigate this polarized landscape in your book and what potential solutions do you offer that could find common ground among those with differing views?
3: Yeah, it, It's one reason that um, I decided to focus on policing, actually, was because the, the politics of policing gun violence look different than the politics of gun regulation or gun control. And it's it's not easy, uh, but it's at least it seems like there is a possibility of moving ahead on making the police more effective allies in, in the campaign to reduce gun violence uh, than they currently are. And the area or the alternative area of gun control The combination of right-wing politics and the right-wing Supreme Court has made that very difficult in the United States. And what we've seen is the erosion of the regulations on, on guns that we've had in the past, which is going to continue as far as anybody can tell in the face of the Second Amendment challenges to any kind of regulation that we're seeing here. All right. So in the policing area, we don't have that. Uh, Of course, the political extremes about the policing debate um, are still not going to be on board with the message of our book. um, That I think on the far left, there continues to be talk about defunding and and replacing the police with social workers and and, uh, so forth. The view uh, on the uh, far right, if you will, uh, is more of a support for vigilante action in the kind of the privatization of violence um, and violence control, which has taken a particular form in the US, um, and, and namely, uh, and a great expansion in many states of the right of self defense which has made it in those states increasingly difficult to prosecute uh, people who shoot other people because they can often use a self-defense argument uh, effectively in in the, especially in the absence of, of witnesses along the way. So noting these extreme views, I would say the vast majority still says a gun violence is our most serious crime problem, B that the police need to be part of the solution to that. And see what we need to do is find ways to make what the police are doing um, more effective than it is right now, uh, especially in creating uh, accountability for shooters and diffusing and uh, criminal and, and tense situations in, in public. And I think that that view of things is not particularly controversial. I think the the detailed tactics and strategy sometimes uh, is debated along the way. And certainly the question about just what should the police budget be uh, is an, an issue for debate. But uh, generally, I, I think it remains true that there is a, a broad support for the idea that the, we need the police, we need the police to be effective. And if they are not perfect as an institution, then the answer is to find reforms that will improve their performance rather than to do away with them.
0: Thank you so much. That was a really helpful introduction to your work and um, the way that you've explored this this topic. So thank you so much, Phil, for joining us on the Oxford Comment today and for sharing your expertise on this ever important debate.
3: Uh, yes, yeah, no, my pleasure entirely.
0: We want to thank our guests, Robert J. Spitzer and Philip J. Cook, for speaking with us about the history of firearms in the United States and possible solutions to contemporary gun violence. Please check out our show notes on the OUP blog for a recommended reading list exploring just a few of the ideas discussed today. New episodes of The Oxford Common will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow Oxford Academic on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and YouTube to stay up to date on upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 84 was produced by Stephen Filippi, Megan Schaefer, and me, Amy Britton. Thank you for listening.